Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ask pretty much anybody who works in show business. They'll tell you the same thing. None of them had parents who really planned on their kids going into the arts. H. John Benjamin's parents didn't either. In fact, in his case, there was a whole Benjamin family business. He he inherited his – that was a family business, which ended with me. I guess I was the one who was going to take over. And then I – yeah, then I went into comedy. So I killed that business. I destroyed him. I win. It's Bullseye. <laughs> This week, H. John Benjamin, the voice of Bob from Bob's Burgers, Sterling Archer from Archer, and a bunch of other stuff. He's got a new book out. He'll talk with me about that. His work on so many great TV shows. And the beauty of fatherhood. I had a, I had a really, like, allergic reaction to being a father for a couple of years. Um, and for that, I forgive him. Then Sarah Driver. She just directed a new documentary called Boom for Real. The Late Teenage Years of Jean-Michel Basquiat. The film explores the early career of the great artist through people who knew him. Sarah was actually one of those people, and she remembers what it was like to live near the Lower East Side of New York in the late 70s. It looked kind of like a war zone, and I cut my hair very, very short, about an inch long, and took on the mannerisms of a young man so that I could walk the streets very confidently and not be hassled. It was very dangerous, but it was also kind of exciting because, you know, you had to have this very attuned antenna to the street and to the people around you. So you were observing incredible stories. Then I'll tell you how to make the best mint chocolate chip cookies you've ever had. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The magic of H. John Benjamin is kind of a one-two punch. First, his voice. It's a, an unmistakable baritone. Then his timing. Stilted, deadpan, usually. It, it catches you off guard, and it makes him one of the funniest voice actors alive today. He can play lovable slackers, like Ben from Dr. Cat's Professional Therapist. Or Bob from Bob's Burgers. Oh, God. Listen, your mother and I have to go downstairs and grind the meat. But you kids know where you're supposed to be while we're gone, right? Tina, you're on the grill. My crotch is itchy. Whoa! Okay. Are you telling me as my daughter or as my grill cook? Um, as... Because my grill cook would never tell me that. Oh. Also, my daughter should probably not say anything like that to me. Tell her. Tell your mom. My crotch is itchy? Come here, let me see. Linda, not now. No, let's all see it. No! I'm just not sure if I'll be any good on the grill with just one free hand. Okay, I'm just going to keep moving here. (laughs) But he can also play, you know, like macho windbags, also lovable, like Coach McGurk on home movies or my personal favorite, Sterling Archer, from my favorite television show, Archer. And, of course, remarkably, all of the voices are almost exactly the same. He's had lead roles in some of the most popular TV comedies of our time. So it's hard to call John Benjamin a failure, but... He doesn't really mind the label. In fact, he just wrote a book called Failure is an Option, an attempted memoir. 
In it, he recounts his shortcomings in excruciating detail. And now, wouldn't you know it, a lot of those failures open the door to success. Failures in family, in work, in serving fajitas. It's a very self-deprecating, self-aware memoir. And since it's written by H. John Benjamin, it's also very funny. Anyway, let's listen to one of my favorite characters John plays, Sterling Archer. Sterling is a spy, sort of like James Bond, but also like James Bond, he is a narcissist and he has a terrible drinking problem and he is sort of a jerk to everyone around him. In this clip from season two, Archer and his partner Lana, who's played by Aisha Tyler, are on a mission in the swamps of Louisiana. Their airboat engine just failed. Now they're stranded in a bayou full of alligators. The swamp's too dirty. It's full of whatever alligator out, which I can only assume is people. They don't eat people. They eat people all the time. They don't. Last year, Sarasota County, Florida, Chet Willard, age 16, swimming in the Oak River Canal, killed by an 11-footer. Two years ago, Chatham County, Georgia, Ruth Baker, age 39, killed in her backyard by a 10-footer. Archer. Same year, Pinellas County, Florida, Walter Jakes, age 70, and his dog, Archer. killed by a 12-footer. Three years ago, Dade County, Archer. what? What are your three biggest fears? Archer. Alligators, by far the biggest. And so you've memorized every fatal alligator attack? Just in the U.S. I can't find any information on attacks in China. John Benjamin, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to get to talk to you again. Thanks. It's been a while. I feel like uh, it's been years. Congratulations on your all your successes, uh, particularly now in the field of failure. Uh, yes, I wrote a book about my failures. Um, I wouldn't call it a success yet, but hopefully. I think it's a success. I mean, you made it onto national public radio. Oh, uh, come on. Any, anybody can get there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Point granted. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure anybody, but come on. I mean, if anyone wandered by right now, they would get on. <laughs> so, John, how would you characterize uh, the difference between your voice characterizations on Archer and Bob's Burgers? Um, you know, I've learned over the years to answer that question. I used to say there is no discernible difference, but people have uh, told me otherwise. Um, and I guess people do distinguish them now. And I've learned that I'm a lot louder and uh, more aggressive as Archer. And I'm a lot more like myself as Bob, probably like right now, as in searching for the next word to say. Um <laughs> But Archer's, um, yeah, like he's he's confident in, in his voice, and I think I'll I'll also say that there's a little bit of improvisation in Bob's, and there's pretty much none in Archer, so that affects the 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 tone of the scenes and the way the characters are because they sometimes we are actually searching for the next word. At what point in your life did you actually make the affirmative choice to become a comedy performer? Because, I mean, you, you describe your life all the way into graduate school in your book yep. without any indication other than occasionally kind of trying to insert yourself into other people's families that you, that you wanted to be a comedian or a performer. Well, it's true. It's not a consistent memoir. It's certainly not a traditional memoir. I kind of go all over the place and mess up and just sort of move not so fluidly from story to story. But I, I 
that kind of doesn't come up in the book because, like I just said, I sort of failed at putting together a memoir properly. Um, so I overlook a lot of stuff. But I, um, I, I, I don't think I've uh, legitimately thought I was a, a real comedian until probably my mid-30s, I guess. And I had been doing it for probably 10 years um, pretty consistently. Like uh, after I dropped out of graduate school, I moved to Boston and kind of was doing sketch comedy here and there. Um, but never took it really seriously, I, I would say, until my early 30s. So probably like, yeah, six to ten years in. I, I want to play a um, – I want to play a clip. And this I think is very uh, – this is like a perfect example of the uh, John Benjamin comedy aesthetic. Um, this is you and – I'm not looking forward to this. Yeah. <laughs> you, <laughs> you and John Glazer – uh, who's a, a fellow comedy writer and performer with whom you've worked on and off for many, many, many years. A professional improviser, not yeah, yeah. And um, the the two of you are are presenting yourselves as a, I guess, a comedy act called the Forget Buddies, um, and and basically the the premise of this, they say they're from San Diego, but then they talk. Like guys, like Robert De Niro in a New York movie from 1980. I think they were from the Little Italy section of San Diego, as, as I remember. Maybe. Let's take a listen. Folks, you're not going to believe this, but uh, the Forget Buddy's got a new candy bar in the market. Let's do some of my material, huh? KC? Oh, you already started. All right, go ahead. <laughs> So like KC said, we got a candy bar coming out. <laughs> jet lag, folks, jet lag. It's a long flight. The name of the candy bar is uh, the Forget About It. Yeah, you remember that candy bar, the whatchamacallit? It's very similar, but uh, the Forget About It has nougat, where the whatchamacallit had caramel. Other than, that, other than that, the same candy bar. I still don't know why that's funny. But the point is, it's a detail. A couple detail. funny words, you never know. Nougat. Nougat is a funny word, you right? You never know what rings what rings for people. you got to let it all hang out, KC. That's what we're all about. That's Forget right. buddies. Forget about it. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Wow. I mean, it's a bit that is so actively resistant to the, appear uh, resistant to the appearance of trying. Uh, yeah. I mean, we we came up with that bit, I think, uh, driving to Hoboken to do a Yola Tango Hanukkah show. So there was no – I think we had planned another bit and we just replaced it because we were trying to find a parking space. And we were in New Jersey. So every time we pulled up, there was a hydrant or a no parking. We were like, forget about it. <laughs> um, and I think John and I then were like, let's just go do that instead of what we had planned. So that bit was, that came out of absolute unplanning, if that's a word. Why did you never do stand-up? I don't, I, do, I don't think I had the facility, and I'm glad I, I didn't. I do it now a little bit, because I, I kind of fake it. Um, 
but I started when I when I started comedy in Boston. I was doing mostly duo acts, or I would collaborate with somebody. Um, and then I got involved in sketch. Um, but that sketch troupe involved a lot of stand-ups. Um, but I just never. I had I had honestly had no interest in it. So um, I, I sort of learned through via other people I've worked with over the years on how to do it. And I sort of started to do it more recently, I would say in the last 10 years, um, which is not a great way to do it. Stand-up is hard to back your way into, but there's a lot of Bob's Burgers fans out there, so they can tolerate me. <laughs> you write really admiringly about your father's work ethic, but you also seem almost worried about it retrospectively. Like your your father ran some, uh, like an electrical supply, like a lighting supply store of some kind. Yes, he did. He he inherited his, that was a family business, which ended with me. I guess I was the one who was going to take over. And then I, yeah, then I went into comedy. So I killed that business. <laughs> um. Yes. I destroyed him. I, I mean, win. You win. <laughs> I won. I won. I, didn't, I, had, I was the one that had the name removed from the... <laughs> take Benjamin off that. But uh, he was... He worked his whole... He inherited his father. My gra uh, grandfather died when he was a very young man. So I think my father... Uh, my grandmother had taken over that business and, and made it her own, and so he and he took over at a very young age. So my real failure feels like I've, I failed him, as in I failed to, you know, sort of that, those expectations, although a lot of those expectations were, um, I, were coming from me. You know, I don't think there was a lot of communication back and forth. So I'm not sure that I've I made the right or wrong decision based on his desire. But it was my assumption that he wanted me to do what he did. Um, but I don't think he's opposed to what I do, and certainly not now. He's, he's, uh, he's a kind man. When you had a kid, did it change the way you related to your work? Yeah, I, I got worse. <laughs> I like stopped working, and I got worse. I there was yeah. I had a, I had a really, like allergic reaction to being a father for a couple of years, um, and for that I forgive him, <laughs> um, or apologize I should say. So yeah, for for some reason like, I didn't have that like spurt of like oh I gotta you know get out there and. And take care of my family, and you know, I just went the opposite way. I was like, whenever he napped, I napped, <laughs> and and so forth. <laughs> Took him around the neighborhood to my to the video game parlor where <laughs> where I would play <laughs> Halo online. <laughs> so he was reared in a yeah for a couple years in a video game parlor in the East Village to the sounds of gunfire. Were you scared about being a dad? 
Yeah, I, I think I didn't know. I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, I think that's, that goes for a lot of people who become a parent for the first time. Um, I would actually use him in a lot of like we were doing I th- at the time. I think Dave Dave Cross and Todd Barry and I were doing this show Tinkle once a week. So he was an extra in a lot of my videos for that show. <laughs> so. I I do feel bad about primarily using a human infant as an extra <laughs> in several comedy videos, which is not the appropriate way to use your child for the first couple of years of their <laughs> of their life. Um, we have a video called a uh, little bit of audio from a video called Baby Pranks. Yes, that was yeah. I think that was one one of them. Uh, this is like uh, – it's a, roughly a parody of punked in look. So you can imagine a lot of shaky cameras and mm-hmm. uh, headset microphones. Um, uh, but instead of pranking your Justin Timberlakes, uh, on this show they prank babies. This kid's name is Judah. What's that all about? He's from the East Village in New York. And this kid loves his milk. Every day at 4 o'clock. This kid gets a bottle of milk. Well, today, things are going to be a little bit different because Judah is about to get baby pranked. Okay, camera one is rolling. <laughs> that, was, that was my son. We pranked my son. Yeah. It's a perfect segue into yeah, the disturbing exploitation of children that I perpetuated my own kin. You play a father on Bob's Burgers, which is a show that has some of the most passionate fans. And not just in, I think not just in the kind of classic, um, like, D&D monster manual or like the those books where... You get all the schematics of the Star Star Trek ships, um, yep. but like fans whose connection to the show is deeply emotional. Very, very much so. Yes, and I'm I'm noticing it more now than ever before. It's so, um, I, 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 in this in the book tour, I've been meeting a lot of the Bob's Burgers fans, and that's been very present. Um, and meeting people face to face. They are like have a like a, an incredibly deep connection to Bob's Burgers. Um, some of whom say that the show is literally required for their mental health. So it's like it's almost like filling in for for healthcare in in some cases. And so people are thanking me for like that the show is necessary for them. <laughs> and a lot of people are saying like they like, can't sleep without it. So apparently the show also puts people to sleep. <laughs> I think it is rare to find something as earnest as Bob's Burgers is that also has, uh, you know, alternative comedy, comedy sensibilities. Um, you know, something that, you know, I find very funny. Uh, yeah. And that's a really remarkable thing. And it's like a special thing that, that comes from it being a family sitcom. Yeah, I I think actually the show, as it was developed, had a higher uh, comedy conceit in the beginning as in a more high concept. I think the family was like, Lauren wrote it initially for Fox as it was a family of cannibals. And 
And so I think it did it had initially the the trappings of what you just spoke of as in you know there was like this effort to make it kind of uh had to something uh like edgy or rough you know and uh that was definitely not Lauren and I think Fox had the good sense to to understand Lauren's sensibility better than he did at that time and they said just make it about a family who runs a business and once I think he was freed up to do that uh, I think then he really put his soul into the show and, and made it what it is and that's I think that was a that was a great move by Fox my interview with H. John Benjamin continues after a quick break We've talked about his comedy career, his acting highlights, his family. What else is there to discuss? Well, how about a thorough and honest assessment of H. John Benjamin's eBay purchase history? Not going to hear that on Fresh Air. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Squarespace. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com bullseye for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code bullseye to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Keep dreaming, but make it a reality with a website from Squarespace. Hey parents, it's Mindy from NPR's Wow in the World. And I'm Lee from the Story Pirates podcast from Gimlet Media. And this week, we're putting our family podcast together for our very first ever... Wow in the World meets the Story Pirates mashup. We'll be exploring a mashup of the senses known as synesthesia. Check it out with your kids. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott, and we're the host of Everything's, Everything's Coming, Coming Up, Up Simpsons. Simpsons. Every episode, we cover a different episode of The Simpsons um, that is a favorite of our special guests. We've had guests that are showrunners and writers and voice actors like Nancy Cartwright. I got a D minus, I passed! And we've also had people that are on the Max Fun Network already. Homer wearing that golf outfit is I so funny. It. And there's, when he gets super into golf, <laughs> he's wearing the golf hat in, in bed. bed. We've had Weird Al Yankovic on the show. I was just uh, struck by how sharp the writing is. I mean, that's yeah. no surprise because it's The Simpsons. But, I mean, like, you, you can't say that about a lot, a, lot of, a lot of TV shows, particularly ones that at that point have been on the air for 14 years. Find us on MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Smell you later. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is H. John Benjamin. He is, of course, the voice of Bob from Bob's Burgers, Sterling Archer on Archer, and more. He also has a new book. It's called Failure is an Option, an Attempted Memoir. A year or two ago, my children, then aged, I guess, five and three, asked my wife what her favorite television show was. Um, I think thinking that she would say, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood? And... (laughs) Uh, and she said she unthinkingly answered them honestly and said Archer. Oh, really? And we spent we spent I'm going to say it's done now. Thank goodness they've forgotten. But I'm going to say a solid year coming up with complicated explanations that would make sense to a three and five year old about why this show was good but not something they should watch. <laughs> Well, they, uh, that my kid watched and probably started watching Archer when he was like nine. 
And... <laughs> it feels early. Yeah, that's it was too early. But you just like you hope he doesn't understand the references or he doesn't like Google them. <laughs> I mean, I think that's all people do while they're watching Archer is Google the references. Well, yeah, but I'm, I guess I'm talking about more like more of the inappropriateness of the show for a nine-year-old. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. But yes, of course, you could also learn things. Uh, Archer is a comic version of uh, the James Bond super spy character in that um, – you know, like James Bond, he behaves like a, the fantasy of how a teenager would behave. But because his mom is his boss um, and because she is like cycling father f- figures through his life and so on and so forth, he also, while he has the kind of insolence and uh, a little bit indolence of a of a teenager, yeah, he also has that kind of sweet, scared quality <laughs> that a teenager has. Especially, I think, a teenage boy who feels like it's his responsibility to be in charge and like assert himself into the world uh, but is also not sure how to do that or and is bad at it right all these these characters around him are there to kind of rein him in um and they do their best all the time and that's that's always a check on on archer's um you know craziness so that interrelationship is really good there's also something really appealing about competence like the fact that Archer, despite being the worst super spy imaginable in almost every category, <laughs> always seems to make it work out in the end. Um, yeah, yeah, he's good. He's really good at his job. Uh, so that's um, infuriating, <laughs> I guess, considering the, the way he behaves. Um. <laughs> But to be good at a, as 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 a spy, I'm not sure is redeeming at all. I think it might be dangerous. I I want to play another clip from Archer, um, and this is this is from the the third season, and the whole season opens. I think maybe Adam Reed, the creator of Archer, who apparently just goes off and writes every episode uh, in his cabin or something. Uh, yes, I've I've been there. <laughs> it's a very odd and amazing feat of television. Um, but uh, I think he's really into muscle cars. And there was just a lot of muscle cars in it for a while. And in this scene, we see this shot of this brand new, super tricked out, all black Dodge Challenger. And um, your character, Sterling Archer, my guess being John Benjamin, is talking to it. Uh, and, and it is his birthday gift. Oh, I can feel it. I can feel your power. What's that? You want me inside you? Sterling. You know my name? Sterling! Hmm? No. Uh, sorry. I believe a thank you is in order. Mother! Oh, my God, yes. Thank you. And not just... Well, mostly me, of course, but Dr. Krieger helped, too. Well, only if by help do you mean... <laughs> oversaw the design of the world's most insanely kick spy car. It's a spy car? Lana? What? Lana? Yeah, oh, no. my God! <laughs> Holy sh- Yeah, I'm like a magnet. <laughs> Brett, shut up. What else does it do? Press that red button? I... 
Wait, is it going to kill everybody? <laughs> that was the best, I feel like the best possible ad for a Dodge Challenger ever made. The, the beginning of that. I don't know why. And I'm sure, Adam Reed, that was not product placement. I think Adam probably loved Dodge Challengers and wrote that from his heart. What's amazing to me is that you also, I mean, you have a story in the book about buying a dirt bike on eBay yep. to ride back and forth to, like, the recording studio in Manhattan. I, I No, I actually, I, I never rode. I've, that was my eBay phase where I was <laughs> bidding wildly on anything on eBay. And I think I got it in my head to order dirt bikes, which turned out to be a disaster. They were like, they were, had to be shipped from Iowa. It was a ma like a massive money pit. That seems like an incredibly impractical thing to buy on eBay. Yes, everything I did on eBay was impractical. Yeah, <laughs> none of it worked out. <laughs> the only thing that really worked out was my, I think I, I got from my girlfriend a sketch on eBay of Lance Bass lying in a field <laughs> Like that some kid had drawn and was selling. <laughs> I think I bought it for like $3, and that was the best purchase on eBay I've ever made. Well, I mean, it's a $1 bid increment, so you outbid somebody. I might, yeah. I think it probably started at $0.99, cents, so there was some Lance Bass fan out there that I beat. Some 12-year-old girl <laughs> that I destroyed with my $2. Well, John Benjamin, I sure appreciate you taking the time to come back and be on Bullseye. It's always nice to get to talk to you. That was great. Thanks, Jesse. H. John Benjamin. His new book, Failure is an Option, an Attempted Memoir, is in bookstores now. And while we didn't get to talk about this during the interview, John also, and this is real, recently released a jazz record. That's what we're listening to now. He plays piano on it. It's called... Well, I should have learned to play piano. This song is called I Can't Play Piano. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Sarah Driver, my next guest, just directed a new documentary called Boom for Real, the late teenage years of Jean-Michel Basquiat. The movie shows a side of one of the great 20th century artists that we don't see that much. He's a savvy young upstart painting on walls all over Manhattan's Lower East Side, a teenager. Sarah Driver lived and worked in the same art community that propelled Basquiat to stardom. And because of that, Boom for Real kind of tells two stories. There's Basquiat's. He shows up in archival footage, though, of course, he never speaks. And there's New York City, pre-9-11, pre-Reagan, pre-real estate explosion. Boom for Real strikes a careful balance between nostalgia and danger, between nuance and hero worship. Let's take a listen to a little bit from the movie. In this clip, we'll hear Alexis Adler. In the 70s and 80s, she was a photographer, she has since become an embryologist. 
She was a good friend of Basquiat's. Together, they'd go to concerts at clubs in New York. And at the time, Basquiat was trying to find a place to live. I found this place on 12th Street. And it was his first stable home, the first place he had a key to. Jean was about 18 and I was about 22. I never felt that he was my boyfriend, but we did have sex and we enjoyed each other's company on a lot of fronts. He was discovering his own art form. Having this apartment allowed him some possibility of working on that, developing it. The walls and floor were his canvas. Sarah Driver, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. So I guess the obvious question is, why did you want to make a film about Jean-Michel Basquiat, and particularly why this part of his life? Um, well, it, it never really occurred to me to make a film about Jean-Michel. Um, but I went over to Alexis Adler's house, who we heard in the clip, um, after Hurricane Sandy hit New York City in uh, 2012. And I went over to her house, I think it was early January 2013. And she had... Been a, she is a scientist. She's an embryologist. And she'd been looking through a microscope for 30 years and raised two children and had forgotten about this work that uh, Jean-Michel had given her when he moved out of her apartment. Um, and um, and she was very afraid that it had gotten flooded because it was in a bank vault under the street level in an area that was in the flood zone. And she went with her daughter and looked and found what what was in the vault. And it was over 60 works, including writings, drawings, a notebook. Um, and then she remembered she had a box of clothes that he had painted. And we all knew that she lived with Jean-Michel because she had this beautiful mural that he had painted over her bed. Of, and it said olive oil on it. And, um, and her bathroom door was painted by him. And... Um, so when I saw everything she had, plus 150 photographs or so that she had taken of him, I thought not only is this a window into him and his development as a young artist, but also it was a really a window into those years in New York that were so particular uh, between 1978 to 1981, um, where there were a lot of young artists coming from all over the country to live in downtown New York, which was pretty much a bombed out zone. I feel like that is a purely New York in 1978 move. Like it's the next level from staying in an apartment because you've got rent control. It's staying in an apartment for 40 years because you have rent control. And also Jean-Michel Basquiat painted some paintings on the walls at one point. Yeah. I mean, I have one friend who has a um, a large mural in his co-op apartment and it's it's, it's a hallway uh Mural, so he can. It's actually owned by the co-op, even though it's inside his apartment, and was painted <laughs> by his friends. <laughs> Were you around this world in the late seventies and early eighties in New York? Yes, I was um, living in Little Italy and uh, going to school at NYU, and I was working on my master's degree in film. And the the school was actually on Seventh uh, Street between Second and Third Avenue, so it was in the epicenter of the East Village. You spend some time in the film. Uh, right at the start, trying to set the scene of what New York was like in the late 1970s, and particularly what certain parts of Manhattan were like in the late 1970s. Um, can you describe for our audience who weren't there what, especially the Lower East Side, was like when this story was happening? 
Well, the Lower East Side, you know, they were burning buildings down, the landlords, because it was much more profitable to get insurance money than to have tenants in, in the buildings. Um, it was, it was, it looked kind of like a war zone. And I cut my hair very, very short, about an inch long, and took on the mannerisms of a young man so that I could walk the streets very confidently and not be hassled. And it, this, it was very dangerous, but it was also kind of exciting because, you know, you had to have this very attuned antenna to the street and to the people around you. So you were observing incredible stories all day long, which I feel like, you know, people are now walking around looking at their screens. They're not looking at what the world is around them. And in a way, it was a great privilege to to be in a, such a dangerous place because you saw so, so many interesting exchanges and you know, we were all going to the same clubs. We were all, um, you know, even if we may not know each other personally, we all knew each other by sight. Um, it was sort of this weird society that just developed because of the, that nobody else really wanted to be in this part of Manhattan. And we, it was affordable. So you could be an artist. You could try all different things. You could try to be a painter. You could try to be a musician. And nobody was in it for the money. It was it was about expressing oneself. And um and you, you paid very little in rent. So you could work in a Xerox shop or, you know, have a part-time job and be able to pay your rent and, and do your art and hang out and go to clubs. And, you know, there were, it was very, very active. What was the relationship between Jean-Michel Basquiat and the graffiti writing scene that was exploding in the late 70s in New York, the kind of hip-hop-oriented graffiti writing scene? Well, he wasn't really a graffiti artist, which I also talk about in the film. Um, although he keeps being referred to as a graffiti artist, he really wasn't one. Um, Al Diaz, who was his partner in SEMA, was a, did come from graffiti culture. And, you know, Jean, he, he, was, he was very provocative. He was, a, he was actually, what I also learned doing this film, is that he was a pretty advanced poet by the time he was 18, 19 years old. The words he was writing on pieces of paper um, and how he was putting them maybe only in two lines and then crossing certain words out that he made clear that you could read. I mean, it was done in a very um, deliberate way. And when he wrote things on the wall, um, he he wrote very provocative musings, which later are, are, you know, his paintings also have those kinds of musings and writings in them, which also make them so relevant for today and, and so, um, you know, so intriguing is his use of words with his paintings. And it's interesting that as a young artist at 16, 17, he was writing these words in the art air, in the art district of New York. You know, it wasn't other places in New York. It was all in Soho and, you know, which at that time was the art, the center of the art world. More Bullseye still to come. Stay with us. When we return from a quick break, a Whole Foods opened in Sarah Driver's neighborhood a couple of years ago. She'll tell me why she loves it and why it made her miss the old New York. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. I'm
Have you ever wondered what your baby's trying to tell you when she babbles? I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of Hidden Brain. Join us as we delve into the secret language of babies and explore what babbling can teach us about how babies learn. Hey, Helen Hong. Yes, J. Keith Van Stratton? What's the difference between a layover and a stopover? I have no idea. What's the difference between optimal and optimum? I have no idea. Well, what's the difference between an actual conversation and a promo for our new show on Maximum Fun, Go Fact Yourself? Nobody has any idea. Go Fact Yourself, the game show with celebrity contestants, super smart experts, and answers to questions you've never even asked. Listen twice a month on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And be in the audience for our tapings of Go Fact Yourself in downtown L.A. It's free. Go to GoFactYourPod.com for more info. We're having a very realistic conversation. Yes, we are. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Sarah Driver, is a filmmaker who just directed a new documentary about the artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. It's called Boom for Real. I want to play a clip. Michael Holman is an artist and was also a member of the band Grey. And he's in your film, and he tells this story about playing a a show uh, at the Mud Club, which was a social center for this scene um, that was famous for hosting bands like the B-52s and the Talking Heads and so forth. Michael has conceived of this stage set that's going to be this geodesic dome made of... Uh, garbage and found materials where every member of the band stands in a different part of the geodesic dome. And uh, Jean-Michel, like, shows up at soundcheck. He turns around and walks right out. Five minutes later, Jean returns with this shipping crate with Chinese characters written on it, walks up to the stage, tosses this wooden cube onto the stage. Jean scrunches his body up and squeezes his body into this cube. He pulls his little wasp synthesizer in with him and his clarinet and looks out at me and smiles. And I realized that in five minutes, without knowing what we were doing, he goes out into the streets, into the alleys around the mug club and finds this wooden crate that not only works perfectly with the design, but has made him the center of attention. And I was like, you mother (laughs) Well, one of the images that I really love in the movie i can't remember who's talking about it but somebody's talking about jean-michel walking around the streets of new york with a boom blocks or i guess at the time ghetto blaster and listening to like industrial noise music yeah he's a contrarian Were there things about him that you remembered from being part of this world that you felt like weren't represented or weren't represented well in the mythologized version of him as, you know, legendary artist with a capital L and a capital A? Well, I just felt like I had a prep when I saw what a lack, because he was very transient during those years. You know, he was sleeping on all different people's sofas and on floors and... Um, and Alexis, 
had the foresight, and many people threw out the work that he left at their houses, and Alexis had the foresight, and she also believed from the very beginning that he he was going to be an amazing, you know, an amazing artist, and they wasn't an amazing artist, even as a teenager, and that's why she saved everything, and she saved it also because it was like a keepsake. He was very dear to her. It can be really difficult to describe what is special about Jean-Michel Basquiat's art, especially his visual art. Um, And there are a lot of folks in the movie who just kind of say, well, I saw it and I knew it was it. You spent so much time in making this film with the works. What do you think is compelling or moving uh, about these paintings? Well, I think, you know, I just love his use of words and his love of words. And and his painting is so full of, it's so vibrant. And it just is just full of energy. And I think that's why people are so drawn to it now. And it's so, you know, like so many great artists who almost have a prophet-like uh, uh, kind of demeanor uh, in terms of you know what they're sa- what he said 30 years ago is totally relevant now and it totally as important now as it was 30 years ago and maybe that's just cuz things haven't changed that much or maybe it's because he was very he was absorbing so much and his output was so great he was incredibly prolific um and um you know i i think i think that I love reading his words. I love reading his absurdist play that he had left at Alexis's house, um, which is uh, parts of it are read in the in the film. Um, you know, I think that Rene Ricard said it very well in the Art Forum article when he called him a radiant child because he radiated. He had a kind of light that came out of him that was kind of extraordinary. But he was also just this kid that would you know we'd, you'd see everywhere. One of the great voices in the movie is Lee Quinones, who's a, probably the most eminent graffiti writer of the first great generation of graffiti writers. And he was he had this relationship with Basquiat through, you know, their kind of parallel careers. And what I love is is the way that he talks about the completely different perspective that Basquiat had on the some of the same techniques that the graph writers were using. Let's take a listen to him talking about that in the movie. It was strange to me because it had nothing to do with style. He was like the anti-style. And at that time, I would never want my work to drip. And he was like into letting it drip. He was into letting art be itself. And that's why his work was very you know, crude and maybe childlike in some ways. Because, you know, when a child is drawing, there's no, there's no holdings. You know, you're not being held back by anything. You're just going by spirit of the moment. And that in itself made for speed, rapidness. We were painting in rapid session because we didn't want to get caught. But Jean was doing it because he felt and probably knew that he only had a limited amount of time. And in, in that urgent moment in his life, I don't think he knew that he was going to die, but I think the passing of the moment was very frightening to him. To not have an idea to get created. You know, life and, and art is very fleeting, 
And uh, he was very much afraid of that. And I think that's what kept his wheels turning faster than everybody else. I was really moved by that sentiment. Yeah, Lee's extraordinary. And I, I love Lee because he's talking about, you know, Jean letting his paintings drip. And Lee is actually sitting in his studio with a painting next to him that's dripping all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> he's, an, he's an incredible artist, Lee. And I was so happy to have him in the film. I mean, like, one of the things about it, right, is, like, if you're part of this graffiti culture, like, demonstrating that you have the most technical skill at the time was essential. I mean, that's what he's talking about. Like, you have to develop a new style and you have to, it has to be tight, right? Like, every letter is perfect and it's really wild and whatever. You know, it must have blown minds that Basquiat was saying, like, no, I choose for this to be rough and immediate and, you know, almost almost fleeting like it's not about the circumstance in the way that it is you know you can only see a few words as they go past on a subway train like this is on a wall or this is in on a on a gallery wall but i choose for it to have that kind of intensity and almost ephemerality yeah i mean he, i think marianne monfortin says it really well she says you know it was something to consider you know, you'd walk by, you'd read it, and then you'd consider it and think about it. And so you were carrying him around all day long. You know? <laughs> Again, he gets the attention. <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, uh, the Times Square show is the climax of your film. Can you tell me what the Times Square show was? The Times Square show was a show that was put together by Colab, and but it also included many artists, also Fashion Moda, which was in the South Bronx, um, and it was downtown artists and uptown artists, and they took over a building in Times Square that was that had been a a whorehouse, um, massage parlor it was called, and it was many many rooms, and uh, exhibits were set up in all the rooms, and there was a fashion show and. You know, Jean used to would paint the clothes like as the models walk by, just splash some paint on them, and um, uh, but it, you know, it included a lot of artists who then you know that that show was when the actual gallerist from the galleries in Soho started to to you know to come up and check things out, and they started actually to get many of these painters in their galleries. From there, it was really the PS One show right after that too. <clears throat> really, kind of solidified uh, this all being a legitimate art movement. Were those shows that you went to personally? Yes, yes, everybody went. What did it What did it feel like to be there? Oh, it was very exciting, and you would see your friends, and you'd see their work, and you know, it was. Uh, and Times Square was always such a trip to go to. I mean, I used to love to go to the movies in Times Square because everybody would talk to the to the screens. You know, they'd start screaming at, at the, the characters in the film and stuff. They were always very lively. <laughs> so. But it was always tricky, too, on the subway, too late at night, coming going back downtown from Times Square. Did you ever, did you grow your hair back out at some point? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I, you know, things sort of got a little tamer in the, I guess, mid-80s or so. 
And less interesting. (laughs) I was just talking to somebody on the show a couple weeks ago about the moment when you realize that, you know, you are walking around with someone in the city and they don't have their, you know, they don't have their head up and their antenna out the same way that you do. And you have this thought like, oh, come on, quit being such a weakling like you're going to get, you know, you're going to get got, you know, like somebody's going to somebody's going to roll up on you or something bad is going to happen because you're you're being a wuss and you're not paying attention and you're acting like you own the place. And then <laughs> and then you realize like, oh, maybe that isn't something that's wrong with them. Maybe that's something that's wrong with you. <laughs> you're like, oh, <laughs> maybe it's OK not to be on alert all the time. <laughs> Yeah, but there's some gifts that you get on alert. You know, it's funny. We had Whole Foods open about two blocks away from us. And I was over at, the, at Robert Frank, the photographer's house. And um, and Robert, he was about 90 at the time. And um, and I said, Robert, it's so great. We have Whole Foods. It's like two blocks away. I used to have to walk 15 blocks for food. And actually, his wife was a wonderful artist, June Leaf. She and I went to the opening of Whole Foods. We were so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and then Robert said to me, he goes, but Sarah, think of all those things you would have seen in those 15 blocks. You know, we don't have the same city experience anymore. How would you say the vibe at the Whole Foods opening compared with the, the Times Square show? <laughs> it was a totally different vibe. <laughs> but I'm very interested in food as I am art, so. <laughs> I mean, better macaroni and cheese at the Whole Foods opening. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think we ate at the um, Ukrainian National Home. That was our big treat. And you'd get lamb chops and applesauce and a potato for $3.95 or something. <laughs> that was like our big meal. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I I, I think... You know, now you don't you don't get those kind of gifts anymore the way you did. You know, because it's become so rich and there's it's not as varied as it once was. Sarah Driver, thank you so much for talking to me on Bullseye. It was uh, so nice to get to see your film and to get to meet you. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. Sarah Driver. Her film, Boom for Real, The Late Teenage Years of Jean-Michel Basquiat, is playing now in select theaters. We're getting close to the end of this week's Bullseye. But before we go, a recommendation from me. We call this segment The Outshot. Look, things, things are going to be a little different this week. Today, when I could have been watching a movie or reading a book or listening to an album to tell you about on this segment, I did something else. I made cookies with my daughter, mint chocolate chip cookies. I used the great chocolate chip cookie recipe from Cook's Illustrated, and I also added a teaspoon of peppermint extract to make them minty. That recipe, by the way, it's a great recipe. It has secrets in it, Uh, but the secrets are pretty straightforward secrets. I mean, I can tell them to you. Uh, You melt the butter, then let it cool. That's important to make them chewy. Uh, You make sure the eggs are at room temperature. They're coming out of the fridge, which is where we usually keep our eggs. You can put them in a bowl of warm water for a few minutes, and that will get them to room temp. And when the whole thing's done mixing, if you want to, you can cool the dough in the fridge for a little bit. I did for like 20, 20 minutes or something like that. You just take a quarter cup of the dough per cookie. You twist the ball in two, sort of 
the same way that you would separate the halves of an Oreo. Then you turn them, I guess, 90 degrees and stick the two chunks back together so that the jagged part, the part that was the middle, is all sticking up. And that makes the cookies craggy. And that's pretty much all the secrets of the recipe. Uh, My daughter and I had a few speed bumps along the way. I ran out of chocolate chips, so uh, I looked in the treat cabinet and found a wolf-shaped choco pop, which I chopped up with a knife. Uh, The coloring that I use to turn them green is actually icing coloring, and I hope that it does not turn poisonous if you cook it, because I did cook it. If it does turn poisonous... And I'm speaking to you right now from beyond the grave. Anyway, 15 to 18 minutes at 325. You're done. You know, that that hour that I spent making cookies with my six-year-old, I could have spent it watching Fellini or Kurosawa or reading James Joyce or something. But I gotta tell you, no regrets. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Great news this week. Two skateboard teens lost a skateboard in the lake, um, and one of the kids managed to get it out of the lake using a palm frond. So don't let them tell you that today's teens aren't resourceful. The show, produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Jesus on the boards right now. Thank you, Jesus. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher at Maximum Fun. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. Our thanks to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free, no charge. You can find them at MaximumFun.org. You can find our interviews in our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, You can find them in any app that downloads podcasts. They are available to you. And hey, while you're doing internet things, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share our interviews there as well, along with clips and highlights from the show and just... Stuff that we've been reading that's interesting. News about people who've been on the show before. You know, it's fun. Just uh, go to Facebook and search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and press like. You won't regret it. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.